Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across Ukraine. Update from the US as negotiations on support for Ukraine grind on. And we hear more about events inside Russia as thousands protest in the Republic of Bashkortostan and even more freeze as pipes malfunction in the Russian winter. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 18th of January. One year and 328 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels Correspondent Joe Barnes, US Editor Tony Diver, and, making her podcast debut, journalist Lily Shanahan. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So first thing, a Ukrainian drone was shot down over a St. Petersburg oil terminal in the early hours of this morning. It's one of Kyiv's most northern or northernmost attacks of the war so far. The attack on the Petersburg oil terminal, which is Russia's largest oil export facility on the Baltic Sea, was uh, apparently conducted by an aircraft carrying three kilograms of high explosives, we hear. Well, that came from a, a Kremlin-appointed official in occupied Zaporizhia, which obviously is quite quite a long way away. So I'm not entirely sure why they would be the spokesperson for this. But anyway, there we go. Vladimir Rogov said there was no damage, no one had been injured, debris found at the terminal and landed in the sea nearby the Gulf of Finland. Ukraine's Defence Intelligence Agency, the HUR, have claimed responsibility for it. A source from the HUR told Ukrainska Pravda, the media outlet, this is a defence intelligence corporate, sorry, defence intelligence operation involving modern Ukrainian assets. Data collection continues and there are confirmed strikes on targets. Now military facilities in St. Petersburg and Leningrad Oblast are within reach of Ukrainian forces. The source um, said it was not the first Ukrainian attack uh, in the area, uh, obviously bordering Finland. You may remember earlier in January, several drones reportedly struck an oil depot, an energy provider in Russia's Oryol Oblast. That's about 200 k's south of Moscow, not far from the uh, Ukrainian border. The oil facility is now said to be uh, operating normally. 
Separately, however, Russia's defence ministry said air defences had their air defences had intercepted two drones overnight. One, another one near St. Petersburg, and one near Moscow. The defence ministry did not comment on any damage or casualties. Um, Governor uh, Vyacheslav Gladkov said that so it's down in Belgorod, now down near the Ukrainian border, a Ukrainian ten missile salvo down near the border apparently left one person wounded and electricity lines damaged. Like I say, that came from Russia's governor down there, Vashilov Gladko. Then in Ukraine, Ukraine's air force said it had shot down two missiles and 22 of 33 drones launched by Russia overnight. Just as in recent weeks, just as we've seen in recent weeks, the drones were launched from the Primorsko-Aktarsk area, southern Russia, on Russia's Sea of Azov coast. Also launched from the Kursk region. That came from Ukraine's air force. They say at least two S-300 missiles targeting Kharkiv Oblast were launched from the Belgorod region, which is just over the border from Kharkiv, just north of Kharkiv. The drones were downed over Sumy, Mikolaev, Herzon, Dnipropetrovsk, Kirovrad and Helminitsky oblasts and at least four of the 22 drones were shot down over um, Sumy which uh, damaged an industrial area there. Uh, in Kharkiv or in Kharkiv region a 57 year old woman was killed and her apartment was hit by artillery shelling. That attack was on the city of Kupiansk right in the centre or sorry in the eastern Kharkiv region also wounded uh, two, two other men. 57 and 61. Now, I don't often read out the individual reports of deaths and injuries. I do so periodically, as I am today, just so these things don't become bland statistics. These are obviously real people behind these stories who went to bed last night with whatever aspirations, hopes and dreams, and then they were shelled for whatever reason by Russia. So I do occasionally uh, bring it down to the personal now, next, politics. I don't normally dabble in the uh, in politics or the military side of politics. I like to know that the knives are coming from the front. But anyway, I'll have a go today. Three stories I want to bring to you. Firstly, Germany's parliament has rejected a proposal to send Taurus cruise missiles to Ukraine. The Christian Democratic Union and Christian Social Union opposition parties had introduced a bill that would have approved the deliveries, but a, a majority of MPs voted it down, 485 voted against, 178 in support and three abstentions. First time I read that, I was disappointed that that they didn't vote for it, but the three abstentions stuck out to me. It's like, why? Why? It's, you know, all get off the pot type territory. Why have you abstained on that? More on that in a moment. Now, nearly all the lawmakers from the three-party governing coalition, that's Chancellor Olaf Schultz, Social Democrats, the Greens and the business-friendly Free Democrats, were opposed to the motion Odd because the Greens and the Free Democratic Party have previously pushed for Taurus missiles to be sent to Kiev. So all that sounds very weird. And I come back to there were three abstentions. So what's going on there? I think what's happening here is it's a lot of politics, basically, in the background. So speaking to the public broadcaster ARD ahead of the vote, German Germany's Defence Committee Chair Marie-Agnes Strack-Zimmermann criticised the Christian Democrats for using what she called a partisan tactic of tying the Taurus proposal to debate on the state of the Bundeswehr, the German armed forces, in effect setting up a no vote. So vote vote the thing down, vote that, that debate down, and the Taurus thing goes with it. Now, she reiterated her demand for Taurus deliveries despite having rejected the motion. This is all it's very confusing, it's all politics. 
She said the weapons would make a fundamental contribution to fully restoring the territorial integrity of Ukraine. So, on the one hand, it's still bad. Germany is still not not stepping up and supplying Taurus cruise missiles. But I think this one, you can write down, I mean, the, the numbers are stark, 485 against 178 in support. But I don't think that's on the Taurus issue. This is deep mired in uh, domestic German politics. So that if there's any sort of grain of encouragement to take from it, I think this is more about German politics than it is about their actual desire for Taurus to be sent. Although I might be looking through rose-tinted spectacles on that one. More to come. Carrying on in the politics vein, Bulgaria has delayed sending 100 armoured vehicles to Ukraine, citing shipping costs. So in December, they said they were going to send the vehicles and nothing, you know, quick as a flash, nothing's happened. So Todor Tagarev, the defence minister, said the cost of sending the vehicles was considerable. He said this is a very serious logistical operation. It's really not. But anyway, Bulgaria's parliament had approved sending them for free with armaments and spare parts back in December. But yeah, nothing's happened yet. Bulgaria's in a bit of interesting position i mean not not as overtly supportive or warm to putin as perhaps victor orban is uh, and they have provided ukraine with a variety of aid since the start of the full-scale invasion but um that there, there is a a large um uh, minority if you like like feeling of um, pro-russian sentiment many bulgarians um supported a position of neutrality regarding uh, the war a poll in October 22 found that 67.5% uh, said their government should take no side. But another one in June last year, so the first one, October 22, then by June 23, shifted slightly. That poll supported Ukraine's accession to the EU, had 64% in favour of supplying military aid to Ukraine and 66% in favour of the government, Bulgarian government banning Russian state-owned media. So there is a, there are there are legitimate internal discussions going on in Bulgaria about how pro or anti Russia and supportive of Ukraine and all the rest of it. So it's a very a very live debate over there. The next one on the politics front, the Australian government, and thank you to to folks who have got it got in touch with me on this one. I've been trying to look into it. I've left messages for the um, for the military and air force attaches in the Australian High Commission here in London over quite a number of days. No one, no one's picking up the phone to me. No one's repli- replying to any of the messages. But the Australian government has formally rejected a request from Ukraine uh, to access Australia's fleet of the now retired Taipan helicopters. Basically, Australia has 45 Taipan MRH-90 aircraft. They were retired last year. The final, it's been a troubled program. The final straw was a crash in Queensland that killed four armed forces personnel on an, on an exercise. So they were retired then. Defence industry, sorry, Defence Industry Minister Pat Conroy said there are no Taipans that are currently in flying condition. He said to get up to any to get any up to flying condition would require a huge investment in taxpayers' funds, time, and resources to do that. He didn't say whether Ukraine had been given the chance to make that decision for themselves and maybe take them on and then do the work that that's required. So bizarrely, the aircraft are currently being dismantled and they're going to be buried. They're just going to be buried in a hole in the ground at an Australian defence site. So it's 45 aircraft. OK, a troubled programme. There was a after the crash in Queensland, there was a one had to ditch, as in make an emergency landing in, into water. Everyone got out of that one. But clearly, there's, it's not a happy aircraft. 
But that's not to say that there's no military utility in them. And Ukraine did formally ask for these 45 45 aircraft. So they felt they, would, they could do something with them. Retired Australian General Mick Ryan, we've had on the pod before, who clearly knows his onions when it comes to this sort of stuff. He said it was a scandalous decision. He's put out a thread on Twitter and he said, rushing to bury, literally bury, rushing to bury usable helicopters rather than transferring them to a nation fighting for its life is shameful and a national embarrassment. So coming in Australia, what's going on there then? And just finally on the the kind of politics side, perhaps a a ray of sunshine, France says it's going to, in this year, so by January 25, it's going to produce 78 Caesar howitzers, long-range artillery for Ukraine. This comes from French uh, Defence Minister Sebastian Lecornu. Uh, He was speaking on television channel, the the France Inter television channel. He said, currently there are 49 such cannons in Ukraine that have achieved tactical success. Our goal is to produce 78 Caesar guns in 2024, encouraging Europeans and our allies to participate in the project. Now, he said, he's talking about the long-range Caesar uh, self-propelled gun flagship of the French artillery, each one costing between three and four million euro, a price which he believes is acceptable to, to allies. He also said that the delivery to Ukraine of about 40 additional Scalp cruise missiles, Scalp EG, which are effectively the same thing as the British Storm Shadow cruise missiles. Uh, they were pledged by President Emmanuel Macron. Mr Lecornu said that those deliveries are going to, con- going to begin soon and will continue throughout the year. And then just very finally for me, David, you will have seen this. I'm not going to snaffle Joe's sandwiches. He's written an article on this. There's some very striking footage of a Russian T-90, I think it's T-90M, tank being engaged we are told with a bradley u.s supply bradley infantry fighting vehicle the 25 mil chain gun on the bradley is 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 taking the t90 apart basically it's not it doesn't seem to be penetrating the armor but it's certainly stripping everything off the off the turret it's then hit by an fpv drone first person view drone interestingly footage from later on suggests the crew the three person crew survived they all got out. We saw them running away, although reports are that two were subsequently killed, one one captured. But it's interesting. Firstly, the punishment that a, a modern tank can take and still protect the crew. But it's also very interesting that a Bradley, that's generally a modern tank, should be able to... So another tank should kill a tank. You, know, you shouldn't have an infantry fighting vehicle that, that could really do this. So the T-90 should have been protected against a 25mm gun from a Bradley, and clearly it wasn't. It wasn't wasn't destroyed it was um, what we call an m kill rather than a k kill so a mobility kill it can't move but the crew has survived and maybe the gun would still work not a k kill which is total catastrophic destruction of the vehicle but still very striking footage you'll find it on our website you'll see it all over social media it's worth having a look at um i mean it's highlighted because it's because it's very visually striking as i say but also vladimir putin last year in june said that the t90 was the world's best tank but um clearly nothing is is completely invulnerable on the battlefield but very very interesting to see the the rate of fire and the accuracy with which a a bradley can take on a target and i'll pause for breath there david Thank you very much, Dom Nichols. Joe, let's go to you next. Do you just want to add some more context on some of the things Dom was saying about the vote in the German parliament? And then do take us through some of the diplomatic and political updates you've been looking at. Yeah, first of all, let's go to the German parliament and why, despite sort of like the Greens and some members of the coalition backing Taurus and why they basically voted it down, 
it was essentially a vote of confidence in the coalition government. They don't want to lose their jobs. So why back an opposition motion calling for Taurus and basically against the government rather than Taurus itself? So basically all domestic politics. I'm sure uh, Germany's NATO allies like the French, the British, uh, who have sent long range capabilities. I'm sure the Americans are on the phone suggesting that they can probably do more. Um, I will go to some of the diplomatic updates that we have today. Um, so first of all, Hungary has rebuked Ursula von der Leyen for saying an agreement on the vetoed 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine is close. So um, Viktor Orban's chief of staff, who oddly followed me on Twitter the other day, so I, I shall message him about this. Um, he said the talks were ongoing, but it was not certain that an agreement would be reached. So, as I said yesterday, Mrs. von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, said that she was confident that all 27 EU member states would back the deal, which is 50 billion euros over the next four years, basically to help prop up Ukraine's economy. Um, Viktor Orban is quoted as saying that he will only support the aid deal if the EU commits to an annual review, basically, as I said yesterday, giving Viktor Orban an option to veto every year basically kicking the issue of his veto into the long grass and into the future. And then over to add to what Dom said about the French aid and basically the French being a bit under fire for not committing enough. Um, France today has hit back and berated Germany for shying away from sending its game-changing Taurus missiles um, and rejects claims that it is lagging behind providing military aid to countries, uh, to Ukraine uh, yeah, so the defence French defence minister basically said, look, we are supplying dozens of scalp missiles while Germany has refrained from sending its homegrown Taurus. So this is what he had to say on France Inter. Germany refuses to deliver Taurus missiles, which are the equivalent of scalps and which are real game changers. And yet President Macron has announced a delivery of 40 or so of these missiles. So basically this comes as part of a mounting row over Olaf Scholz's comments the other week when he basically called on other EU countries implying indirectly that France isn't doing enough based on a report from the Kiel Institute which suggests uh, that France had only delivered 440 million euros worth of military aid and France's defence minister has essentially also slammed this report saying it's neither trustworthy or viable and basically saying that the Kiel Institute has confused pledges of deliveries of weapons that work, basically saying that, look, Ukraine has been given a lot of sort of decent stuff, like the Caesar uh, 155 artillery howitzer and self-propelled, which the Ukrainians love by all accounts, and the Storm Shadow equivalent of Scalp. So basically, it's the continued row going on there. Also, what's interesting, in Paris today, there is a meeting of what is a new artillery coalition for Ukraine. It's 23 countries that basically aim to help Ukraine by providing them with enough 155mm artillery shells. Ukraine's defence minister has cancelled his planned visit to France because of security reasons for this, but we don't actually know exactly why. Let's move to David Cameron. That's Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton, Britain's foreign minister or foreign secretary. He has compared Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler and has urged the West not to appease him. So David Cameron, Lord Cameron, gave an interview to Politico while in Davos. This is what he had to say. To me, Ukraine is the absolute number one priority. This is the challenge for our generation. This is like being a foreign minister or a leader in Europe in the 1930s. We 
have got to not appease Putin. We have got to stand up to the evil that this invasion represents. Then Cameron went on to say Putin isn't winning. He has lost 300,000 people. He's lost a fifth of his Black Sea fleet. He's added two very important and well powerful, well-trained members of NATO, basically referring to Sweden, who haven't yet quite joined, but are literally on the cusp, and Finland, who joined last year. Back to Ukraine. Uh, Dmitry Kleber, the foreign minister, while in Davos, has said there is no point of negotiating a peace agreement with Vladimir Putin because he will continue to fight wars until he dies. This is what Dmitry Kleber had to say. Putin clearly said two days ago, we are not going to give away what we have achieved. What's the point of talking to him? I think he will be fighting various wars until he dies. We just need to understand one thing. We, not just Ukrainians, but also people who defend certain rules, have a historic responsibility to win this war. His Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, has essentially hit back, saying Russia will not agree to peace, a peace deal with Ukraine unless Ukraine adjoin, agrees never to join NATO. You'll remember the language from the Vilnius summit basically said Ukraine will one day be a NATO member, but stopped short of actually saying when and where that will happen. But this is what Lavrov had to say. Everyone is clear that it is not Ukraine that will decide when to begin serious talks about realistic terms to put an end to the conflict. That would naturally mean rejecting its Nazi ideology and rhetoric, rejecting racism regarding everything Russian, rejecting their aspirations to NATO membership. Remember, the Russians basically say anyone that is Ukrainian and doesn't agree with Russia is a Nazi. Obviously, sort of a very bizarre claim but that's what they say we might as well say it because you can decide how ridiculous it is or not then Lavrov went on these are not dreams these are terms for perversing the ukrainian nation uh, preserving the ukrainian nation sorry no it's persevering the ukrainian nation as an independent nation that would have its own identity rather than carrying out someone else's orders to vex russia the west is not interested in any negotiations clearly and evidently it is Washington that is calling the shots in Davos. Blinken, if I remember correctly, said he did not see a remote prospect for negotiations, not just on the settlement, but also on a, a long-term truce in Ukraine. They don't even want to talk about Ukrainian settlement. So yeah, basically, this is just ongoing sort of Russian craziness. And it's one reason why, if you speak to anyone in the US, the UK, Ukraine, they say... There can't be negotiations because there's basically no landing zone between both sides. Um, and then a little domestic scandal in Ukraine that's broken out. And Vladimir Zelensky has been condemned for the surveillance, or he's condemned the surveillance of journalists as unacceptable after several investigative, investigative reporters were covertly filmed at a New Year's party. The journalists from B-House Info were accused of buying and using drugs after footage and taped phone calls of their get-together were published online. The SBU security service said it had opened a criminal investigation into the surveillance. As a Yuri Nikolov, a prominent journalist who investigates defence procurement corruption, said on Wednesday that he had been visited at his home by unknown men and intimidated. So Media Ruk, a association of Ukrainian journalists, urged Mr Zelensky to stamp out any harassment and intimidation of reporters. So yeah, interesting. So you see why it happens. There's been lots of stories and releases by the Ukrainian government that there is lots of corruption within the defence procurement sphere, and that's something they're trying to stamp out. Is why former Defence Minister Reznikov was essentially sacked and handed these marching orders and replaced. And yeah, that's apparently coming back to bite journalists 
on the arse a little bit who are trying to uncover it and Zelensky is coming to their sort of their rescue a bit because it's one of his main priorities and I'll stop there David. Well thank you very much Dom and Joe for your updates there. Let's go to Washington DC then for our US editor Tony Diver. Tony I know this won't be a particularly long section but I know you wanted to just keep us in the loop in terms of what's happening in the US and the incoming well on the horizon votes to approve this new aid package to Ukraine. Thanks, David. Yeah, good morning, everyone from Washington. Yeah, I'd just like to give a couple of quick updates on what's going on here on the ground. I've just got back from Iowa, where we've had the first Republican caucus of this Republican primary race, where Ukraine was coming up a little bit on the ground. There's still those accusations that we talked about last time from Donald Trump and from Ron DeSantis, accusing Nikki Haley essentially of being a warmonger that is becoming a bit of an issue in this race where those on the right of the party are accusing Nikki Haley of wanting to get America involved in more foreign wars. So that's bubbling along in the background as we talked about last time. But I'd also like to give an update on what's going on with the negotiations in Congress. So as we've said several times, on this podcast, there is this ongoing logjam between Congress and the White House where Joe Biden wants to get his $61 billion package through to allow him to send more US weapons to Ukraine. And that's being opposed by Republicans in both Congress and the House who are insisting that there needs to be some kind of movement from the White House on domestic border measures in order to allow them to vote for that. So what happened yesterday was that there was a meeting at the White House with both uh, senators and representatives where they talked about a potential landing zone for this deal. It's probably important to know that we've been talking about this deal since October, I think. So nothing's materialised so far. It seems like we're getting a bit closer in terms of working out what both sides want out of this. There was press conferences then held by all sides afterwards, in which the Democrats in the Senate said that they thought that we were more than 50% of the way towards a deal, which, if that gives us any idea of the timeline, suggests that we're still not that close. But it, they said it was the Chuck Schumer, the Democrat leader in the Senate, majority leader said that it was the first time he could ever say that we were more than halfway there. So there's an update there. But I think perhaps the more interesting thing was Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, saying that he didn't think that a deal was that likely unless the White House would agree to move on some of the more controversial measures. And that includes this policy of parole, which we talked about last time, which basically allows the president to allow asylum, illegal asylum seekers or illegal immigrants into the US under a special presidential order. The Republicans in Congress would like to get rid of that power because they say that Joe Biden could abuse it or has been abusing it. Uh, and that's their red line. The White House, unsurprisingly, doesn't want to give up the power that it holds to do that if it ever came to it. So that's the lines of where the negotiations are at the moment. I think it's interesting that we're seeing a slight divergence here between Republicans in the Senate and Republicans in the House. That's because it seems that the Republicans in the Senate are a little bit more willing to agree a deal here. We did we have known for some time that the House is more hard line. And those who've been following this for a while will remember that it was actually the Senate that was much more pro passing a deal for Ukraine spending a couple of months ago before we found that Mitch McConnell and some of those other prominent Republican senators then turned against a deal. So it's true that we still have a bit of a division there where House Republicans, a lot of whom are from the kind of MAGA Trump wing of the party, are a lot more sceptical of agreeing something on this than the Senate is. At the moment, the deal has been negotiated with the Senate, and that's looking like where the legislation will originate. But we know that anything that is agreed with Senate Republicans then has to go through the House anyway. So Mike Johnson and his Republicans in the House, who have a majority, essentially have a veto over um, what's agreed here with the White House. And uh, as we're seeing, there's not a huge amount of movement in terms of bringing something forward. So I think for those of us who 
thought that we might be able to get a deal uh, in January. That's now looking very unlikely. This is the cans being kicked down the road. And as we've discussed many times, and as the others will know better than me, the Americans not being able to supply weapons does create a problem on the ground. It's already creating shortages. There have been warnings that the Ukrainians will have to choose which targets they defend themselves from when the Russian winter bombing campaign continues. And that's because, quite simply, they don't have as many air defence missiles as they would like to have, and they are having to already conserve some of their supplies on the ground. So, yeah, that's the latest from Washington. Unfortunately, there isn't any major movement, but what we are seeing perhaps is uh, the outline of what a deal might look like should the White House want to agree to it. Thank you so much, Tony. And just quickly, you mentioned you just come back from Iowa uh, reporting there. Did the issue of Ukraine, support for Ukraine, come up much on the ground when you were out there? Well, Nikki Haley's very keen to talk about it. We know she's Trump's former UN ambassador. She's a more establishment Republican, I suppose you could say. She does believe that the US should be taking a prominent role in the world. It should be defending freedom. It should be defending Ukraine specifically from Russian attacks. And she argues that defending Ukraine now sets a precedent which would show other authoritarian regimes around the world, perhaps China in Taiwan, you know, perhaps Russia elsewhere, um, that the US is willing to stand up to incursions and to foreign soil. And so she says that it's, it's vital that we continue to spend this money. That's picked up by the other side, by Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, who accuse her of bringing the US into foreign wars, potentially endangering US troops in the future, and spending money that they say should be best spent on domestic priorities, including the border, but also including various other campaign promises that they've got. So yes, I think the nitty gritty of Ukraine isn't really discussed on the campaign trail. There's not a huge amount of awareness here of what exactly is going on. But I think it's being discussed pretty much in terms of the defense of global freedom versus the uh, the budget and how much money is being spent on this stuff. And you know, you, you see those arguments are playing out even when you speak to voters as well. There is concern that some Republicans and especially Democrats want the US to be involved in continuing wars which are expensive and, uh, you know, and potentially harmful to US troops. Well, thank you very much, Tony Diver, coming, calling in from Washington there. Thank you, Dom and Joe, for your updates as well. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Let's go over to Lily Shanahan. Thank you so much, Lily, for joining us today. You've been looking at a couple of stories in Russia. So Francis Dernley gave us the top lines yesterday on the unrest in Russia in Bashkortostan, the Republic of Bashkortostan in Russia. Can you take us through the details of the story? What happened? Hi, thank you for having me. So, um, yeah, in recent days, particularly yesterday, thousands have gathered to protest the sentencing of an activist who's been charged with inciting racial or ethnic hatred. Uh, his name's Fal Alsinov, and I'll give you some background on him in a second. But basically, the protest has been huge, and there's been reports of maybe even 3,000 to 10,000 people gathering outside the courthouse despite freezing temperatures. They're shouting phrases that tra- translate to English things like shame, we are with you, and calling for his freedom. 
videos shared on Telegram, which is a popular social media site in Russia, have shown police fans arriving to the town and riot police with the helmets and shields clashing with protesters. In response, protesters are shouting and throwing things like snowballs and gloves at police. But police have reportedly tear-gassed and hit protesters with truncheons and have seen videos of protesters being carried away by their peers and kneeling down and rubbing their eyes, washing it with water. There were some reports that people tried to block the courthouse entrance after the sentence was announced. Fael has been sentenced to four years and this charge stems from a speech he gave at a rally in late April last year in the village of Ishmurzina, which is also in Bashkortostan, which is a republic in the Ural Mountains on the border with Central Asia and Europe, Eastern Europe. And um, in that speech, he was criticizing the local government's plans to start gold mining near the village as it would bring in and using migrant laborers to do so. He used a phrase in Bashkir called, which says, which kind of has been translated in Russian to black people and is a derogatory term to Central Asians and people from the Caucasus. But his supporters and Alcinov himself, who is who has say, stated he's going to appeal, have said the words in fact mean poor or common people and were mistranslated. Supporters are also saying that this is politically motivated and is kind of revenge for Alcinov's activism in the past. So he's been... He was a leader of this organization called Bashkort, which wanted to preserve and protect the culture of the Bashkir people. And that was actually declared an extremist group in 2020 and so is no longer in existence. He also protested against the industrial development of a sacred hill, of which there are only four in the region and are sort of associated with folk legends and things like the Bashkirs and has held rallies in defense of the Bashkir language. So it, it seems that while he could have said this thing and it could have been mistranslated, it does seem to many protesters and supporters of Fayil that, in fact, he's just being... It, the, the kind of government is just getting revenge on him for his activism. According to local media, Alsinov called Russia's mobilisation drive a, quote, genocide of the Bashkir people, end quote, and said Moscow's offensive, quote, was not our war, end quote. And Lily, thank you so much for that. How much should we read into this? How much does this matter, do you think, in your experience of watching Russia? And what's the situation now in Bashkortostan? So the situation currently in Bashkortostan, the Ministry of Internal Affairs have called the demonstration um, an unauthorised rally. And in a post on Telegram have said police have begun investigating mass unrest. Various different outlets are saying that people have been detained. These kind of numbers vary from 5 to 20. But a detainee told an independent outlet called Vyorska that six activists detained were arrested in Ufa, which is the region's capital, and given jail sentences of between 10 and 13 days, although there's no information about this on Ufa's court's website. I would say that this can be taken further because this is a fairly remote region and to have a protest of this scale, especially after Russia's crackdowns since the war, it's, it could be read as significantly. I mean, a former administration official has said that these protests represent a significant failure for the governor and pose a colossal problem. Since Putin announced his candidacy for re-election, there's been multiple challenges to the Kremlin, including inflation, and now the rallies in Bashkortostan. So while it could all be shut down and repressed in the end, the fact that a protest of this scale has occurred and people aren't scared to go out and defend Alcinov, it 
I think it's fairly significant. Well, thank you so much, Lily. Let's move on then to the other story you've been looking at. On to Novosibirsk. You've been following up a story essentially about uh, dodgy pipes breaking in the in the deep uh, winter in Russia. Again, it sounds like a small story, but it's it's more meaningful than perhaps it first appears. So what's happening in Novosibirsk? What are you seeing? So uh, yesterday, a pipe carrying boiling water burst in Novosibirsk, which is a Siberian city that's currently in freezing winter. A stream of boiling water gushed out and images shared on various social media and local news channels have showed clouds of steam billowing around around residents and along the streets, some reaching the seventh floor of the nearby building, the, the sort of smoke, the steam clouds. There's been reports of injuries. One witness told Sota that she saw a man take off his socks, pull up his trousers, and his whole skin peeled off. Um, the region's health ministry has said that 13 people have received burns to the legs and two have been hospitalised. This isn't an isolated incident and is, in fact, the second incident in recent days of a pipe bursting in this area. On January 11th, pipes also burst, leaving 104 homes and 13 institutions, schools and things, without heating, according to the Siberian Express Telegram's channel. This time round, there's just 70 homes, a hospital and an ambulance station left without heating. But in freezing temperatures, that's a pretty big deal. The region's governor has said that the burst was actually probably a consequence of the incident on January 11th, which came from a technical failure in the city's central heating system. And the Siberian Generating Company, which is responsible for supplying heat to the houses, said that there was a defect in the pipeline. The pipeline itself was actually laid in 1963 and underwent major repairs back in 1990. So it's not not very modern technology. It was initially reported that 200 houses were located in the area where the heat is disconnected, but now it's specified that it's about 69 to 70 houses, two nurseries, school and a tuberculosis hospital. The City Hall has released a statement saying people will be compensated for the heat and it will take into account the compensation of additional electricity costs for heating because people apparently are queuing up to buy temporary or yeah temporary heaters. This is not the only time that this has happened recently either. Uh, In Nizhny Novgorod, a heating main has burst in the city and flooded streets with boiling hot water. Videos also posted on social media there have showed steam rising from streets and sidewalks. And a man could be heard saying in a video that it's like a banya, which is a kind of an outdoor bath used in Russia. More than 3,000 residents were reportedly left without heating, according to local Telegram news channels. And 7x7 Horizontal Russia, which is an independent news site, has reported that at least 43 regions have reported major utility incidents this month, including in the Rostov region, Sverdlovsk city and Vologda residents. Well, Lily, let's let's just apply that same question then. I mean, as you said, we've reported a few times, we've been hearing quite a few of these stories of mass heating outages. So thousands of people, thousands of hundreds of blocks being left left in the dark and the cold during the winter. There's, a, there's clearly a pattern here, as you've just talked us through. How significant is this? How much should we, should we be paying attention to this as a potential flashpoint for unrest and dissatisfaction with uh, Putin's government? Yeah, I mean, I was looking through the um, social media channels and some people are expressing frustration, which is it's a bit harder to express frustration in Russia than in other countries uh, for fear of retribution, perhaps. And people were saying there are people with injuries. Someone said, wake up, prevent it. Another person said they were sat without heating for five days. The children got sick and using a lot of exclamation points and things. People are 
seemingly dissatisfied. And it will be interesting to see how, if any unrest or if this impacts uh, Putin's re-election, because it appears that he wants to create an image of a country that, despite the war, is getting along quite nicely. And that's just not really the, the case in reality. Well, thank you very much. Well, sorry, Lily, is there anything else we haven't mentioned that you think is important for our listeners to hear? Just that I would say that there are being there are some crackdowns over heating outages. And actually, on January the 9th, Reuters said that Russia has arrested three officials over heating outages south of Moscow. And I think perhaps there, there will be some consequences, but it will be interesting to see if people do get compensation that they deserve. Well, thank you very much, Lily Shanahan, for that. Let's move now to our final thoughts then. Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So just continuing the theme of the chat I was referencing earlier on with it on the politics side of it, I'm going to be channeling my inner Celeste Patterson in the next few hours and going to a to an event with, with a number of uh, European diplomats, the diplomatic corps. I will try not to spill the mayonnaise down my shirt. But if anybody had some thoughts, questions, comments they'd like me to try and put to the uh, to the diplomatic corps here in in London, I would be uh, be very willing to uh, to try and try and get them into a conversation if possible. I will be speaking to people if I can about Taurus and Caesar and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, if anyone had any thoughts about what they would like to ask a very senior European diplomat, or not just European actually, there should be other, loads of others there. I will um, I will try and put that to them. Thank you very much. You know where to find me on all the usual socials and stuff. Thanks. Is this the event, Dom? That despite our urging, you've not invited myself or Francis as a date. But ne- never mind. We can talk about that afterwards. Joe Barnes, would you like to finish off today's episode? <laughs> sure, I would say where's my invite, but I'm that's quite happy to be avoiding diplomats since that is my life is result, revolving around what they're doing and what they're saying. <laughs> no, just some interesting remarks um, that Dimitri at War Translated has put on Twitter and kindly translated for us. Um, and it's a series of interviews with fighters from the 47th Mechanised Brigade. That's who the, the Bradley that blew up the T-90 belonged to. And they're basically one of Ukraine's best equipped brigades. They were given Bradleys and Leopard 2s and were basically created to spearhead the counteroffensive. But in October were moved to help defend Avdivka in Donetsk. And they're, they're just interesting that they're, they're, they're sort of saying and speaking about the defence of Avdivka at the moment in this and one of the soldiers is saying, look, we see these Russians from afar. Um, they're just, the majority of them die on the approach. We basically are able to take them out because they're sent, to, they're sent to an obvious death. And they're saying that the Russians that are sent into attack Avdivka are sent in groups of 20 or 30. As their sort of comrades get shot down, gunned down, killed, injured, they're just left and people are treading over corpses. And they're basically forced to advance through fields and wooded areas where there's no cover and there's nowhere to hide. But essentially the Russians are told to keep going. And it's it's just it's, it's interesting to think because we often look at think pieces and good analysts who say Russia are learning from their mistakes. But um, I think Avdivka was subject to a attempt at combined arms manoeuvre at one point when Russia launched a offensive in like a a renewed offensive in the area sort of november december time last year but now they're back to their old tricks like we saw in bakhmut and they're essentially just piling through the meat grinder and plowing forward um, like you wouldn't believe um what's interesting to say is the the 47th 
as I mentioned, were one of sort of the elite brigades pulled together, equipped with all of the best Western weaponry. And they're saying, actually, the Russians have more men focused on Avdivka than they had defending in Zaporizhia, where Ukraine had such a tough time trying to advance through uh, various minefields and series of defensive lines. So it's it's interesting to see the Russian priorities on that front. And it's uh, like one of one of the guys, and he looks like a. They don't name them one of the Ukrainian soldiers. He looks incredibly young, basically saying that here the Ukraine the Russian enemy is like advancing, and they look like zombies as they're doing it. Yeah, it's horrible scenes for the Russians. Good news for the Ukrainians, I guess, but. If Russia carries on piling resources into it, Ukraine will one day not be able to hold out because, like we saw in Bakhmut, numbers do play in the favours of Russians and the Ukrainians aren't willing to just leave their men in, uh, in, in the kill zone longer than necessary. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how it's developing down there. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 